Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, uh, for this great uh, gospel of Matthew. I thank you, uh, Lord, how you used Matthew to uh, share with us uh, Jesus, the Messiah, Lord, how you um, have begun, begun to present him to us, especially to the Jewish reader, um, Lord, the authentication that he indeed is um, the Messiah. And so, Father, as we look at today's story, as we look at his um, just powerful actions, his authority over sicknesses, Father, I pray that you would introduce us anew to Jesus, that we would adore him, that we would come to know him uh, closer, Lord, in our relationship. Father, we pray for those that don't know Jesus here today, Lord, that um, you would begin to open their hearts, Lord, and uh, connect the dots and show them things that they have questions about. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your wonderful grace, and we thank you for your word, and we ask that you'd help us now. In Christ's good name, amen. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come to under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes. And to another come, and he comes, and to my slave do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on them. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. This was fulfilled. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. May your spirit illuminate the meaning of this text. May you um, open our hearts, Lord. Uh, we love you, and we ask you for help. And it's in Christ's good name. Amen. All right. So the story here is moving um, geographically. Uh, he, they were up. Uh, the location of the Sermon on the Mount, they're moving down the hill to the town of uh, Capernaum. 
they're moving uh, in context. It's Jesus has been teaching for the last chapter five, six, seven, three chapters uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And now uh, Matthew is going to present him to us, um, his authority indeed, and how he handles uh, healing people. Um, actually, James, perfect. You walk out at the same time during both services, right when I need him. Uh, so, uh, James, you know what to do, my friend. Uh, he did the same. It's perfect. Um, okay, so this view, what we're looking at, where the Bible verses are, this is actually a picture that's taken from the location that the Sermon on the Mount was preached. Well, we are looking to the south, down the hill, um, to the Sea of Galilee, right here. Jerusalem would be off the horizon, some 70 miles that way. Uh, down, if you go down and you hang a left, that's where Capernaum is. Um, let's see if we can go to the next slide to sort of orientate ourselves here. Uh, so up here is the Sea of Galilee. Running from north to south is the, the Jordan River, and it flows into the Dead Sea. Down here we have the city of Jerusalem. Sort of keep that in your mind because we're going to talk about that today. So there's Jerusalem. 70 miles north, uh, we have Capernaum up here on the seashore. Uh, this is where today's story mostly takes place. Uh, up here on the hill, somewhere like there, is where uh, the sermon would have happened. If we could go to the next slide. Uh, this is from Google Maps today. It's kind of hard to see. But if you were uh, in Israel today and you found yourself at the, the location of the Sermon on the Mount and your car broke down and you need to walk down to uh, Capernaum to get uh, gas, which there's no gas station there. But just in theory, and you go to your smartphone, you say, hey, how do I get there? This is the blue line from uh, the Church of the Beatitudes. It's this hillside. Uh, you would, the little blue dots would take you on the road. You go down. You come back. There's a couple switchbacks because it's a little steep. You would go around, and you would come here to the city of Capernaum. It's uh, 6.8 kilometers, and it would take you, according to Google, about an hour and 20 minutes to walk. Now, I don't know if during their time they were up here on this hill and they just uh, took a shortcut straight down. I don't know. Uh, but that's sort of what we're looking at today. Um, okay, James, you can turn back on the lights, and we'll, we'll look at the other stuff later. Thank you, James. <clears throat> so, so the movement of the story is they're heading down the hillside. As we look at verse 1, um, it says that when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. This is a continuation, if you would turn with me back to, to Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 4, verses uh, 23 through 25, this is where the story sort of um, is left off. Uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 23, we read, Jesus was going throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, uh, this is a word that always gets me, uh, demoniacs. You guys can offer a suggestion to me after the service. Um, epileptics, paralytics, and healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, from beyond the Jordan. These huge crowds had descended upon Jesus. And in chapter 5, verse 1, we see that he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. Then in chapter 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, we have the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. When we come to chapter 8, verse 1, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. So uh, that's right where we left off. They went up, he had his teaching. Then these large crowds, they come back down. 
In today's story, there's going to be, commentators will tell you there's three. I'm the kid that always raises my hand in class and say, but what about this? And so there's three. There's uh, the leper, there's the centurion's slave, there's Peter's mother-in-law. But then in verse 16, we're told that they brought many to him. So I kind of count that as category number four. Uh, These three groups of people, all of these people were on the lowest possible plane of society as far as Jews were concerned. Um, None of these uh, people mentioned in the story would would have been allowed into the temple. They would not have been allowed into the, the temple square to worship. They would all be people that are excluded. And yet, yet Matthew starts with these people and the, the miracles that were done for them. Verse 17 is sort of the key. Um, when I was in the military, my job, I was a communicator. And if you had to call for help or, or, or to get supplies, anytime you made a, a call for help, the voice on the other end of the line would say, okay, we heard all of this. Can you please authenticate yourself? And I would have a little flow chart of things, depending on the situation, that I could authenticate by whatever means to say, okay, this is my authentication. I would give the authentication. They would look at their book and they go, okay, this is, this is legitimate. This is the right person so we can then deliver. Uh, realtors do the same sort of thing. Uh, every realtor, if they want to go into a house, um, they have a little thing on their keychain that has this little code. It changes like every single day. And so when they go to the house with little the little box with the key, they have to look at their little authenticator, punch in today's code that lets them know that, hey, this person is allowed to enter this house because they have the right credentials. Verse 17 shows the heart, the purpose. Why does Matthew share about these miracles that we're about to read about? And in chapter or verse 17, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away Um, our diseases. So Matthew says, when I look at these events and I look at the Old Testament and I see the many prophecies, uh, these miracles that Jesus was doing, these were signs, these were things that authenticated that this Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Matthew writes entirely for the perspective of convincing the Jewish person that Jesus has all of the credentials. He starts with the genealogy He moves into fulfilled prophecy by John the Baptist. Uh, His teaching on the Sermon on the Mount was like no other. He spoke with authority that at the end of chapter 7, verse 28, it says when he finished with these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. He taught like no other. Then as he leaves the mountain, there's going to be in the next two chapters some nine miracles grouped in sort of categories of three, authenticating, demonstrating that Jesus's authority and his power wasn't limited to just his words. He had his words, but these miracles authenticated the power and the truthfulness of the words that he spoke. And so as we come into verse two, they're heading down the hill. They're not quite to the town. And we're met with this phrase and a leper came to him and bowed down before him. The English isn't able to convey, there, there, is, there is no equivalent translation for the word that's been excluded. There's and, and then there's another word in the Greek. It's a powerful word. It, it, it highlights a juxtaposition between uh, two things. Uh, in a lexicon, this is what it would say about this phrase. 
Um, a, a person who is relatively unskilled or inexperienced in some activity or, f- or field of knowledge, layperson amateur, in contrast to an expert or uh, an expert or specialist of any kind, the uncrowned person in contrast to the king. And so as Jesus goes down, Matthew says, and, and there's another word that there's really no way to translate in the English that, that highlights that Jesus, the king, the Messiah, the creator and sustainer of the universe is met by this leper who is the lowest on the totem pole. He, the, the only way lower for this person to be is if he was a corpse on the side of the road rotting to a Jewish person. That's the only thing more defiled than this leper. And so he meets Jesus. He falls at his feet. Um, the Talmud, the, the, the Jewish instruction for how to handle, um, there's the rules, the instructions, the interpretation of how to handle the Old Testament. Uh, the rabbis that wrote the Talmud, they said that if you're confronted uh, with a person with leprosy, you're never to be closer than six feet with them. If there's a breeze, it moves drastically to 150 feet of distance. Um, to help us see the picture, there's a book called Unclean, Unclean. Somebody's researched leprosy. This is quoted by a commentary on Matthew. And this guy, who I can't say his last name, I don't even know what it's, Huzinga, he writes this, helping us to understand uh, really what leprosy was. Uh, the disease, which we call leprosy, generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon, the skin in such spots loses its original color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers drop off or or are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see the person in this pitiable condition as a leper. By a touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can even smell it. For the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, The leper's voice acquires a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can now not only see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a particular taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. I probably should have given you a warning. I wasn't looking at your faces as I was reading, but Melanie's still horrified over there. She apparently was not in the first service. Um, You read this, and you can see why a person, like six feet, no wind, I'm probably, let's just take it 150. Winds kick up quick, I've read in the Bible on the Sea of Galilee. Like, I'm going to keep my, maybe we offset by a little bit more. The consequences to this disease, in addition to the physical pain that the person was going through, would be isolation, loneliness. They were expelled to the edge of town. And even today, thinking, 
Like, I'm not even really an extrovert. I probably more am an introvert. So I'm okay with a little bit of, like, private time. But even in my day-to-day life, I don't even realize how many people's hands have I shaken today? How many hugs have I given and not even realized it? Um, That the person would be isolated, no touch, no interaction with other humans. This was a, a, a... a desperate, deadly, contagious, in human, in, in is, I want to say in Jewish history at this time, there was no human that was cured of leprosy um, by another human. There's a, there's a couple stories you can get from the Old Testament where there was a, a sort of a divine from heaven sort of miracle, but no, no human. This is a terribly contagious disease that there's no cure, no hope for. Um, And a leper came to him and bowed down before him. There's a huge crowd following Jesus. And this leper, who as he's moving, he's supposed to be covering his mouth at the top of his lungs saying, unclean, 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 so that people can get away from him. And he comes to Jesus and he bows. You could translate this word worship. He falls before him and he pleads with him, Lord, if you are willing. He doesn't say, which I, he doesn't say, If you can, it's if you are willing. There's an indication that he understands that Jesus can heal him. However, this is a condition that is not healed. There's there's no documented evidence of a leper ever being cured by a human being. But this man in his state trusts that Jesus has the capacity to do it. If he is willing, you can make me clean. And we're told that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And I, and I don't want to fly over this without seeing the, the power of what Jesus does here. This, for somebody to touch a leper, you then become a leper by clean, cleanliness standard. You would be kicked out of town. Um, Jesus reaches down in front of all these people and he touches them. A, a few years ago, I'm thinking it was... Grace was a little kid. She was like one, maybe younger than one. Um, so maybe, t- I don't know, eight, nine years ago. Uh, maybe it's maybe it was pre-Grace. I feel like Grace was born. We had visited somebody in Coronado. We got on the 5 South. And if you go down about a mile on the 5 South, there's that, that loop around to where you can get on the 15. And at this loop around, there's like three different on-ramps that merge into one. You go underneath the bridge. Uh, it's where 32nd Street kind of goes out. And it was just getting dark. Um, the sun had set. It was dark, but you could still see. And as I went under the bridge, I saw an object fall off the bridge. And I knew exactly what it was. A guy had jumped off the bridge. And so I pulled ahead, and I said, Anna, don't look behind us. I got to go take care of something. And so... I pulled up, I, I ran back, and as the, the handful of onlookers began to like help this man, um, my role was clearly the cars that were coming from the 5 South looping around. My job was to try to flag them down to stop so that there wouldn't be another accident. And as I'm stopping the cars, waiting for the first responders to come, this lady who I am convinced like it, is an angel. Like from, from everything that I saw, there was this lady, the guy was face down, bleeding. He ultimately died. 
And I see this lady get down on her hands and knees and literally lay next to the guy and just start rubbing his forehead and praying with him. And I'm like, this is amazing. I don't think I could do, I could do that maybe for somebody that I know and love, but some stranger, I don't know how this lady expressed this sort of, like I'm at a loss for words for what she did. And to me, this is the equivalent of what Jesus did is he reaches down and touches this leper. The compassion, the love, and then Jesus looks at him and he, he says, I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. As I, as I reflect on this first miracle, it strikes me that this is what Matthew presents to us. This is a miracle, but it's a, a miracle that requires cleansing. And in today's Christian culture, we present the gospel for forgiveness, which we need forgiveness. But this aspect of we need forgiveness, but we're so defiled with sin that we need cleansing. And it's this beautiful Jesus, like this, this guy's forgiven, but he's cleansed. And then the story just continues. Um, Matthew doesn't tell us how this goes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is a, um, he does give a couple commands. He heals the guy. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but show yourself to the priest and present an offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So he instructs him, don't say anything. Keep silent about this. Um, there's a lot of speculation over this, but it's likely that it wasn't his time. Jesus doesn't want to be known as a faith healer. He's, he's, he's coming, giving signs, but he's the Messiah, and he's trying to show them um, the, the, the way to the kingdom, to life. And he says, you go to the priest. Now, I showed you the, the, um, the, the trail to Capernaum, which is about seven clicks down there, probably short if you just cut down the hill. But the priest wasn't there. That's a synagogue. The priest was in Jerusalem. And he says, go there, be seen by the priest, see that the priest examines you and declares that you're clean. There's a couple things to point out. Jesus lived and died under the law. He told us in the Sermon on the Mount that he didn't come to, to annul the law, but he came to fulfill it. So here they are. They're still living under Old Testament law. If the guy was healed, he had an obligation then to go be the priest and be declared clean. This is quite the commitment to this guy who's a leper. Um, the, the equivalent to walk to Jerusalem from Capernaum, I showed you guys on the map, 70 miles. 70 miles is a basically for us to walk from here, downtown San Diego, to the base of the Cordado Bridge, and then back. Round trip, that's about 70 miles. So he's, if this was today, this happened. Hey, walk down to Coronado Bridge, come back here, be seen by a priest, be examined, make your offering and then walk back home. So all the way back down to Coronado Bridge and come back. That's quite the journey. I barely like driving that distance, let alone walking that distance. And Jesus says that the reason that he wants him to go to the priest, the law required it because he says, if I find my place here, he says, uh, because Moses commanded, and then as a testimony to them. So you get the, the, the sense that as this guy showed up to the temple, waits in line for his turn to see the priest, the priest says, how can I help you today, sir? I had leprosy and I've been cured of leprosy. Can you examine me and show to me 
like, give me the certificate of cleanliness. And my guess is the priest would look at the guy and say, you don't have leprosy, but nobody gets healed by leprosy because it's incurable. And Jesus says this uh, as a testimony to them. And if the priest who examined this guy says, hey, you don't have leprosy, and he actually believes that the guy did indeed have leprosy, he would have to, in his mind, say, there's prophecy about this. The Messiah must be on scene. But unfortunately, this guy, his first act following his cleansing is disobedience. Matthew doesn't share it with us, but if you were to go to Mark chapter 1, verse 45, we read there, uh, but he went out and he began to proclaim, proclaim it freely to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter the city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So the guy went around from declaring, unclean, 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 to, hey guys, I'm clean, I'm clean, I'm clean. I don't know if there's anything here, but I keep seeing that here this guy was on the outskirts of society. He couldn't make it in there. Now that he's healed he's telling everybody he's in the city and jesus gets basically run out of town jesus is now in the unpopulated area that jesus has now changed places in some respects with this leper but matthew just moves on and when jesus entered capernaum a centurion came to him imploring him and saying lord my servant is lying paralyzed home fearfully tormented matthew goes straight to the encounter of this centurion coming to him If we were to go to Luke, I'm not going to read the story in Luke, but if you want to go to Luke chapter 7, the first 10 verses, Luke expands upon the story. And in Luke, we learn that the centurion had received word that Jesus was coming near. This man is a Gentile. So in that respect, he would not be well received by a Jewish rabbi. He was also a centurion who the Jews would hate a centurion, a soldier, uh, there, there was a commander over a hundred men. The, the centurions, the Roman soldiers, they represented Rome that had the Jews uh, under their authority. They had taken their freedom away in large part. They wanted to be broken free from the, the iron fist of Rome. And so Luke tells us that this centurion, he sent a delegation of these Jewish elders and these Jewish elders go before Jesus and they say, Jesus, there's this, this Gentile, this centurion. He loves our people. He loves Israel. He loves us so much that he built our synagogue for us. He has a servant that is paralyzed and is suffering. And so I want to stop there. And man, James didn't really walk by, but Robert, can you kill the lights for me this time, please? This is working out just like the last service. All right. So now let's go back to the walk to Capernaum. All right. Okay. That's the Israel. Next one. Okay. So now we're at this area. This is the northwest part of the, the Sea of Galilee. Um, the next slide is going to be an aerial shot of this. So this is looking to the south. Um, this is the Sea of Galilee. Um, this way is Jerusalem. That's that road back up to the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a tiny little area. There's not really much around here, but this is the town of uh, Capernaum. You'll see um, this uh, remnant of the town. This is this, the synagogue that still remains today. If you happen to go to the trip to Israel with us, we will go to this site. 
Um, you'll be able to walk around here. Um, this spaceship, I think I'll address it right now. Um, I don't say it disrespectfully. It's not a spaceship. <clears throat> it's, you guys heard of a glass-bottom boat? It's a glass-bottom church that's on stilts, and the glass-bottom in the center of the church, it looks at Peter's house. And so you can walk out and see straight into the house, which is one of these tiny little squares. Um, let's see here. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is taking us... Uh, like to, let's go back, please. Just one slide. So this picture... So if this is this wall... Uh, I, I, the picture is kind of taken, I think, from this angle right here of this wall. So go back. So now we're looking at the synagogue. Um, all the rock down here, this dark rock, this is the basalt. This is the rock that would have been there uh, during the time of Jesus. The, the, the whiter rock stone was added later uh, during sort of a, a re, uh, reconstruction period. Uh, next slide, please. We're now going to go inside of the, the synagogue. And so in the synagogue, the white was not there during Jesus's time. But the basalt rock below it, this is the, the floor, the foundation. This is the actual synagogue that Jesus taught. And this is the synagogue that was there. This is the synagogue that this centurion in today's story funded uh, for the people of Israel here in Capernaum so they could have a place of worship. We can, uh, okay, now one more slide. We'll go to the spaceship. And so this is, if your back is to the synagogue, you'll look at the spaceship. Um, it's got these pillars. So right underneath, right there is where Peter's house is. So the synagogue would be your back. The synagogue would be your back and you'd be looking across the town to where Peter's home was. Okay, now we can turn on the lights and go back to the original slide. Um, so we can kind of imagine and see uh, what, what's happening here. Luke gives us the background. Sends the delegation. They go there. They plead, this is a great man, Jesus see. And then the story kind of unfolds. Then Jesus is met by the centurion. Matthew starts right there. Uh, verse 5, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Uh, this would be a young boy by, by the wording, young, young servant. Um, in this pleading by the centurion to Jesus, we see the character of this man. Uh, according to the law, he could basically have deserted the servant. He could have abandoned him some. I, I read, I, I don't know how I was able, I wasn't able to totally verify it, but... Um, but some references were made that the guy under Roman law, a servant that was sick like this, paralyzed in great pain, he could have executed him. Um, and yet we see this centurion who oversees a hundred men in the military was, was certainly wealthy. This would have been a position that, that, that those that would be in, in high places of power in the Roman government, this is sort of where they start and sort of leapfrog up from. This, this guy had authority. And yet he goes to Jesus, he fights through the crowd to plead with Jesus to heal this young man. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now I need to stop us here because we read this and we think, oh, Jesus is just a great guy. He's just going to go to the guy's house. He's going to go there and he's going to heal him. And if we don't know the culture here, we'd miss something. To go to a Gentile's house is about the same as touching a leper. For a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, to enter the home of a Gentile, it just wouldn't happen. You would, be, you would desecrate yourself going into that home. Um, yet Jesus tells him, go, t take me to him. I will go to your house. I'll heal this young man. 
And the centurion stops Jesus. And the heart is that he understands Jewish culture, that Jesus, it wouldn't be right for Jesus to come to his house. And the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. There is not. He's worried because Jesus is the God, creator, sustainer. None of us are worthy for Jesus to come into our homes. But there's also the reality that this guy is a Gentile. And to have a Jewish person, it is, this is unclean. This is like offering the rabbi a BLT after church. You know, you don't, like, you, you just wouldn't do it. Yeah, no catching. You guys will think that's funny. And I'm clearly thinking about lunch already. Um, <clears throat> I think, honey, do we have bacon? I don't know. <laughs> focus, focus. Where were we? I'm looking for bacon. I don't see bacon. Okay. Um, Lord, I'm, verse 8, but the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word. I know your authority. I know your power. Just speak it. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. And he goes on to expand his understanding of the power and authority of Jesus. He says, for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does that. Or something close to that. He says, I don't have your authority, Jesus, but I am a man under authority and I understand how authority works. There's absolutely no need for you to go to my house. You can just speak it. And, and this slave of mine will be healed. This is beautiful verse 10. I think this is most military men's like favorite verse in the whole Bible. You know, in the New Testament, they mention centurion a couple of times. Never once is it in positive, uh, negative light. It's always positive. Um, and, and this one, Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Let that be. Jesus marveled. It was just back a few verses in chapter 7, verse 28, when, it's, when we read Jesus, when he had finished with these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. I'm trying to do the math here. 11 verses later, we have the creator of the universe marveling at the faith of a Gentile soldier. This is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And he said, the word tells us that he marveled and said to those who were following, who were following, there were thousands of Jewish people following this crowd. They'd just come down the hillside. They'd seen him heal a leper. And now there's this centurion standing before him, pleading with him, understanding his power. Just speak the word. We don't need to play through this whole game of you coming to my house. Just speak it. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Then we come to verse 11. He says, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I believe at this point, those that were listening, they would have applauded that. They would have been excited to hear what Jesus just said. Remember, historically, I don't think I have time. I don't really, I don't really have time to really go into it. I'll just enough to tease you with false, hopefully accurate information. But if you follow the, the biblical account of Israel, you come to the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah where it was prophesied, but you see the, the nation of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom uh, going into captivity. They're led away. Then we see the southern kingdom being led away. The people of Israel were scattered across the world. No longer to be a nation until the nation of Israel was established um, when it was most recent, 2,000 years later, when it was established again. Uh, this is referred to as the diaspora, that they were scattered. Um, during this time, Alexander the Great came to great power. He wanted to dominate the whole world, which he did. 
One of the things that he did in dominating the world was that everybody had to speak the same language, Koine Greek, which then allowed for the transmission of the word of God and the, the gospel to, to, to spread like no other time in history. I think that we're like just now with the Internet, I think we're approaching another point in history where information can spread at, at the speed in which it spread back then. So the nation of Israel scattered. Those that were scattered, like years and years went by. Many Jews, they'd lost their ability to speak their native language of Hebrew. They started speaking Koine Greek. This is where the the main translation of the Old Testament that they had was the Septuagint, which was the, the Old Testament in Greek. Then you had a remnant of Jews who lived in Israel, who, who held uh, to the Hebrew language, the customs, the culture. They, they were true Israel as far as they were concerned. As the church started, we see tensions amongst the church. This is the reason that deacons were created because the widows of the Hellenistic Jews and the widows of the Jews that spoke Hebrew, they were arguing over who got them out of food, and it was this great tension. So the Jews longed for the gathering of their people to come back. And Jesus, when he talks about this faith, I believe in verse 11, everybody that's listening to him, they think that he's talking about the Jewish people. As I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course they will. The Jews will return to their motherland. They'll come back to Jerusalem in the kingdom of heaven. Of course. They're the Jews. (laughs) But Jesus continues in verse 12. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. And the place there will be weeping and gnashing and teeth. So all of the Jews by DNA, by bloodline, who felt entitled to the kingdom just because they were, Jesus says, you guys will be cast out and Gentiles will be brought in. This is, this is mind-blowing. And I keep thinking about this all week, this, this, this sense of entitlement, this sense of Jesus then throws this major wrench in their, their comfort zone. They're thinking that they were just going to be there in the kingdom because they're Jewish. Um, Ann and I were watching the show the other day as a courtroom scene. I love all the courtroom shows. And, and uh, you know, you get suckered in there. Then you think you're an attorney and you're like wrestling through. And I don't even remember what the situation was. But it was the prosecutor was prosecuting somebody that had a ton of money. ton of money. They had all the evidence on their side. And the person that was on the, the company that was the defendant they realized that they were sort of in a, in a really difficult spot. And so they offered some settlement of like millions of millions of dollars. And it's like, take it. Yes, they got it. But the attorney says, no, we have so much evidence and so much that we're going to take this. We're going to let this ride all the way to the jury. And then we're going to be awarded so much. But then as the story unfolded, they found video, and the video sort of dismantled the whole thing. And they're like, oh, maybe we should try to take the settlement. And then the, the, the defender's like, we're not, that, that offer is gone. And so I read this, and I see the entitlement of the Jewish people, and I keep thinking, it's better to settle with God out of court than it is to face him on judgment day. And Jesus is offering us a settlement. Hey, guys, I've settled your crime. I've all of your sins. I've paid for them. Just take the offer. And I think there's a lot of us who say, nah, I'm gonna, I think I'm a good person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this ride out to the jury. And it's not going to be good. 
And I think Jesus is showing us, take the offer, take life. Because he's speaking to the Jewish audience, and I think what he's doing by telling about this is that they would humble themselves. That they would follow the example of this great, this Gentile. And then in verse 13, um, Jesus said, go, said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment, just as Jesus spoke it, healed. The centurion understands, he knows what's going on. And then verse 14 and 15, short, sweet, but powerful. When Jesus came to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with, her fe- with a fever. Now, if it says that he saw Peter's mother-in-law, what does that sort of indicate to us? Peter's married. Um, I grew up being told that Peter never had marriage. That's why none of the priests were married. Um, but we see that Peter here is married. His mother-in-law is sick with the fever. We see that and we think, oh, no big deal. Just give her a couple of Tylenol. She'll be fine. <laughs> um, but here we see the third person that that's, was on the outer skirts of, of culture. The, and fever, we have to think like Little House on the Prairie fever. Like, like, in, like 100 years ago, you had a fever? This is like somebody's going to die. Like we just have to write it out and hope they live. Like This is a life or death situation. And I love this story. It just says he touched her hand and the fever left her instantly. I get the fever with like a flu fever about once every 10 years. I just had my 10-year mark in November, got super sick. I threw up. It's miserable. And... Um, but it's like when you get well, there's still like three or four days where you kind of have to shake out the kinks, you know? Like you're just like, oh, I'm well, but man, it's rough. Here Jesus heals her, and it's like instantaneous. He heals her. He's like, hey, boys, what do you want for lunch? Like, it's like, mom, like, okay, Peter, just her little boy and his friends that he's running with. It's lunchtime, or, you, or it's probably dinner time. They've probably been out of the Sermon on the Mount all day and doing whatever. And it's like, what do you guys want for dinner? Let me make you something. It's this beautiful picture. I think of the Christian life. If you go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you see in the first two verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, basically, in my own paraphrase, that you are not saved by works, you're saved by grace. There's nothing you did to save yourself. There's nothing that you could do. It's totally and completely by the grace of God. Um, on the whole issue of faith, which comes into this story, your faith could be tiny or it could be huge, it's not your faith that saves you. It's in the object in which you place your faith, and that's Christ. But then you go to Ephesians 2.10, and it says, but we are his workmanship, and the word there is like a poem. It's poema. We're like God's masterpiece, and though he saved us, he's created us for good works. And it's just this beautiful, simple picture of she was sick, he heals her, she gets up, and she begins serving. And then we see the crowd when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all those who were ill. And I, um, I, I read verse 16, I think, was this the fault of that leper? Did this leper do this to Jesus? Because we know that he didn't obey Jesus. He went about proclaiming that he was healed. And then Mark tells us that because of his proclamation, many flooded to Jesus. So I don't know if all these people are showing up 
because of that leper or who, I mean, we know that all the people are coming to Jesus. Jesus is healing them. And this whole section, this is where we come into, I got time here. I, um, my notes, it's dangerous. My notes, it just says right now, speak openly. <laughs> I do have a couple of notes though. Um, there are a number of, he- there are three main healings. And then if we take the last, the fourth one, it's just like there were many, who, who knows? We see that Jesus healed. Um, in life, the saying that we hear all the time, no matter what the situation, well, at least you have your health, right? At least you have your health. Your house burned down, but at least you're, you got your health. Totaled your car. You guys all okay? At least you have your health. He's your healthy stuff. We can replace stuff, but your health. And so it's guaranteed that we all will face health issues, whether it's sickness, whether it's accident, whether it's natural causes, and you just die one day, you just drop. Like it is inevitable. And dealing with these things is is traumatic for it's difficult for us and i believe the reason it's difficult for us is because solomon ecclesiastes tells us that god has placed eternity in our hearts and so we just deep within us death sickness dying it doesn't compute if we were to go back to genesis chapter 3 verse 24 we see after the fall of man after adam and eve are sort of kicked out of the garden for eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil there's a second tree that we don't often talk about and we see there that God placed an angel with a sword and fire and protected this tree to keep them away from this tree. And this tree was the tree of life. And so there's the picture that if this tree wasn't guarded and I believe ultimately destroyed in the flood, that humans could have gone on indefinitely in a sinful state, which would have been a horrible, horrible. Can you guys imagine if every human being of all time was still alive in their sinful state and still going and going and going and going and going? Or if you, in your depraved state, as your body's deteriorating, yet you won't die. Like it, it, it's death, as much as it's hard for me to possibly even conceive it as like speaking openly, death is actually a beautiful form of God's grace and freeing us from the bondage and destruction of sin. But many people over the years have come to these verses of healing and said, if we just do certain things, if we exercise enough faith, then God will heal you. Some, like Christian science, have said, well, if you live a certain way and you play by all the rules, you will become sinless and you will never die. And that was the main premise. Now, she died many years ago. And every Christian scientist has died because it's a, it's a, it's a consequence of sin. Um, I, I have a background from a church that's now been going through this huge faith healing thing that's just so off from the word. Um, but but I, I get it. Like I, I long for healing and health and de- desire wellness and and even though I know all the theology that, that to die is gain, I don't want to die. I like living. I like it here. I, like I know all the theology, but in my flesh. So then when I come to looking at sickness and death and dying, I understand it's my, my humanity within me that, that doesn't, 
I pray for health. Um, I, I believe God heals people. I don't know why he heals some and doesn't heal others. I know that 18 months ago or however long it was in February of last year when Anna was being rushed into the OR at Palomar Hospital and they looked at me like, well, hopefully we'll save her and the child. But I didn't know as those doors shut. Like I was certainly okay with praying, God, please spare my wife. But in that surreal moment, I remember also like as I'm praying, Lord, spare them, Lord, keep them safe, kind of like the, the marquee in my brain kind of scrolling over and thinking that song that we just sang, blessed be your name, like saying to Lord or trying to convince myself, Lord, even if you take my wife and child, I will still praise you because this life is temporary. This, this, every person that was healed in the scriptures has ultimately died. And I know that God, every single person who's trusted Christ, we will be healed, but it comes through death. And so I look at this and I go, when I see Jesus's earthly ministry, do I still think he heals? Of course, I said that. I believe that Jesus still heals people today. But then when I look at the Gospels and I see that there's this high concentration in all the scriptures where Jesus is healing, it's found in the Gospels. If you go into Acts, there's nearly not that. There's a, there's a handful of healings, um, but they're farther and fewer between. And then when I look at the guys who witnessed the healings, who were there, who were part of it, who may have been healed, and I follow their story into the epistles, the letters, and I start scouring the pages for what do we learn about healing? What do we see in this? Well, from the men who saw these healings, what I see from them is things like to die is gain. Or I might have to die is gain and to live is Christ. Everything points to the afterlife. Paul, who in Acts, it doesn't necessarily say that he was like having healing services, but it says that as he was working, he would pass over people and they would be healed. They would take his sweat rag and they'd touch it and they would be healing. They would be healed. But then Paul, who has this thorn in his flesh, who we don't know what it is, this man who God used and healed people, he says he pleaded with God three times. This man who God used to heal other people, he He says, Lord, or he tells us, I prayed three times that God would take this from me. And God's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. The only other place is in James. We're told that if you're sick, to go to the elders, have them lay oil on you and pray. And and, uh, so there's that. I, I, I get it. I'm just trying to be open with my tension in all of this. But it does, I think, come back to all of this. Why did Matthew share with us? Why did the, why do the gospel writers tell us and record about all these healings? Why did Jesus do this? And I think the key is in verse 17. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So when Matthew comes on scene as a Jewish man and he sees these healings, he sees Jesus raising people from the dead, curing them of leprosy. He says this was fulfillment of Isaiah. And Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 4, he says, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. You know, where does this come from? Chapter 53, if you turn with me to chapter 53 of Isaiah. 
This is powerful. Isaiah 53 has got to be one of the most something, most, if I had Michael Nichols with me, I'd be able to figure out the word I needed for this. But the amount of prophecy, the amount of fulfillment, Isaiah 53 is so contested by skeptics, and it's quoting in the New Testament that skeptics will tell us that the detail, the accuracy of what Isaiah, that was written some, I believe, off the top of my head, I think it was about 700 years before Christ, the accuracy that it, predict, that, that it fulfilled, the prophecy that it said about the cross in Jesus' life, they had to have created this and added it following the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. There's no way, there's no way that a prophecy could be so detailed and so uh, down to point by point be fulfilled in Christ. It, it's impossible. And this is what's so fascinating about the Dead Sea Scrolls because when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they know that the Dead Sea Scrolls were from 400 years before Christ. And when they went through the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had the entire book of Isaiah in pretty much in perfect condition. And when they got to Isaiah 53, word for word, letter for letter, everything is there. And it's in Isaiah 53, it's verse 4, but I want to go back to verse 1. So Matthew, when he sees this, he quotes from Isaiah 53, and he says, this is the reason that all of this happened. Who has believed our message? And to whom is, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a, a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You could go through this even down to the, the, the prophecy of his grave that that he would be put in a tomb of a wealthy man. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. And so when I look at Matthew and this story of these healings and these miracles, what I see is that Matthew is trying to authenticate to us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. That as we face death, as we uh, face sickness and trials, when we place our faith in Christ, the object of our faith is so great, so awesome that we can rely upon him to transition from this life to the next. We can trust on him in this life to lead our lives in a way that he commands us to. Um, his invitation is just to come, to be cleansed, to, to worship him, to walk with him. For he is great. Let's pray. 
Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, we thank you for, for the gospels that record and share with us, Lord, the, the history of the life of Jesus, the Messiah. Father, I don't even think that we get a glimpse of the amount of prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, our, our minds are so finite that we can't even grasp his majesty, his power. And so, Lord, we come before you and we just thank you, Lord. We thank you uh, that Christ died for us. We thank you that salvation is by grace. Father, we pray that you would give us uh, just a growing relationship with you. Father, help us to understand how awesome Jesus is, that we would stand amazed in him. We thank you, Lord, for being a great, mighty, awesome God. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.